We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. Welcome to the pod. I just got off an awesome call with Olivier from Shippo. He's an incredibly thoughtful CFO. I could tell that there were wheels turning behind his head that turned a lot faster and hotter than the wheels in my head. And he's seen some some really cool stuff in terms of how companies bring a product to market, how they scale it, and then how they sell it. So I felt very fortunate to speak to him about that. Before we get into that, and you're going to love it, I need everybody to smash that five-star button. Whether you're in Spotify, podcast, YouTube, I don't even think they have a five-star button. Uh, Just tell us how great we are in the comments. I made everyone I went to dinner with last night do it and told them that it would help pay for daycare. So please, smash that button, help me pay for daycare. I have another child on the way. These bills are stacking up. Um... So we got a couple of things that I want to hit with you here. We're going to go off the books. And the first one is a question that I got from Timothy Landry, Tim. Tim said, hello, I work at an enterprise software company and we're going through the annual plan right now. How do you think about building sales capacity and goal setting for the first half of the year versus the second? Does it ramp up over time? And what happens if you don't hit your first half goal? This one I've been thinking about for a while because I'm going through the process myself and I kind of liken it back to training for a road race. So uh, I do a lot of 5Ks. I used to be an amateur boxer back in the day, but my wife wouldn't let me get hit in the head anymore. So I had to find this competitive outlet and I've been doing 5Ks. I try to do like one per month and I'm training right now for the upcoming Thanksgiving turkey trot. I'm the psychopath who shows up and goes all out and then throws up in the bushes next to California Pizza Kitchen after. It's happened twice. I'm that guy, the tryhard. Yeah, the the one doing blood doping for the community road race. Somebody said it's a 3.1 mile race. You want to make it a two mile race. So what you're essentially doing is you're de-risking the second half of the race by making sure you have ample capacity and don't completely burn out in the first part of it. And so you're building sales capacity. You want the first half goal to be attainable and set you up for momentum to finish at what I call a negative split. A negative split when you're running is when you run incrementally faster each you know, quarter mile, half mile to the end of the race. And so what I do when I break up the race is I try to just survive the first mile and go out in a comfortable pace so I'm not redlining. That's exactly what you don't want to do. Set a goal that makes everybody redline, get frustrated and get all out of whack and start doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing out in the market. Um, And then pick up the pace once you get to two miles. And why that? Because you know that you can sustain uh, a high level of anaerobic activity for for that time. But if you go out super fast, you're going to completely blow up. Um, I've seen it and been a part of that at companies before where we get over our skis with setting too ambitious of a plan. Because honestly, we finished the year really well. 
um, in Q4 as a lot of companies are back end loaded, especially if you're growing fast. And then we said, Hey, I think that we can do, you know, bigger than what Q4 was. And then it's just like an overly ambitious goal that sets you up for failure. And you end up having morale issues, honestly, like if you come out the gate and don't hit the first quarter and, and you're sucking wind for the second half. So I don't, encourage people to sandbag the plan, but think carefully about what capacity you have butts and seats walking into Q1 today. What is the market going to give you in terms of how many renewals you have coming up? What's the procurement cycle that's going on? And set the goals so you can get quick wins. The best way to build momentum is to do good in the first mile. Uh, you know, we're talking about the first quarter or first half here. You want people high-fiving and feeling confident having that swagger in the second half of the year. And I think that is the same thing with, you know, running a race. So I break every race up into half mile increments. So I know that there's six half mile increments in it. It's a 3.1 mile race. And then I say, you know, damn the torpedoes in the last 200 and just go until I throw up in the bushes. Like I said, get out the gates quick, but get out at a comfortable pace and set yourself up for success and run a negative split. And you'll see that in the numbers. So like as a CFO, you want to sit down and look at the monthly numbers and quarterly numbers and see it ramping over time as you get more butts and seats throughout the year. But make sure when you start, you have enough capacity in seat. Thanks for the question, Tim. Give us five stars. Oh, by the way, I know you're all on the edge of your seat waiting for the Gustafson car update here. So for context, uh, I have a pregnant wife. We have a child on the way. I think the hormones are getting to her head. So we just keep going back and forth of what type of car we're getting. Uh, I thought I was making a fiscally responsible decision. Um, we were going to get a used Toyota Highlander, lots of utility um, with Apple Play and a third row or a used Ford Edge. But uh, apparently she woke up one day and said, uh, we should get a Mercedes instead. So um, we compromised and now we're getting a Mercedes. I told you I love to negotiate and um, I found out something about myself that I was lying. I hate negotiating. So I went to CarMax, literally the only place you don't have to negotiate for a car, haggle-free pricing and, uh, and worked out a deal. And then uh, the last bit of the story, uh, you know, I work in the auto industry for a vertical software company that that's in the automotive space. And so I'm always asking my my boss, he's the man. I'm always asking him like, hey, what type of what what's a good car to get? What's a bad car to get? Um, and he's like, well, let me just start with this. If you buy a Range Rover or a Land Rover, don't show up to work on Monday. And then he said, uh, you know, Toyota, they never break down. You know, Volkswagen, sometimes they have problems with them. And so I came back, thought I had made a good decision. I'm like, hey, guess what? Uh, we decided to get like a base model Mercedes SUV. And he, and he looked at me. He's like, that is just so on brand for a finance guy like you. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, you know the difference between a porcupine and a Mercedes? And I just kind of looked at him perplexed. And he's like, in a Mercedes, the prick is on the inside. So I'll leave you with that story. Proud car owner, haggle-free pricing, and on to the interview with Olivier. What's going on, everybody? This is CJ Gustafson back with another episode of the Run the Numbers podcast. I have Olivier Adler on the podcast today, the CFO of Shippo. Thanks for joining me, man. Yeah, of course. Happy to be here. I want to start with your time at Eero. And so you were CFO at Eero for almost four years before you guys sold to Amazon. Can you walk me through the story of Eero in, in two minutes? It's an amazing story. So Eero, for those who don't know, develops uh, till the first Wi-Fi mesh router. So it's a massive upgrade to how routers used to work beforehand, the old Linksys and Netgears of the world. I joined Eero in 2015 
just before they had launched their first product, a pre-revenue. And it was an opportunity for me to build the ideal finance team, but more broadly business teams. So Eero is a consumer electronics company and consumer electronics is a really tough space to be in. Eero went through a massive roller coaster, all the ups and downs going from being one of the hottest companies in 2016 to having to compete against Google and other much better funded companies. Eventually, like you mentioned, we sold to Amazon and the company is doing incredibly well right now. It must be one of the top acquisitions Amazon has, has made. I may actually be using a Wi-Fi router that came out of that acquisition right now. So something's working there. I should have come with a, with a coupon code. Maybe Eero should sponsor the, the yeah, episode with CJ. Um, we're always looking for another sponsor to sell on NetSuite. So <laughs> let, let us know, Amazon. I wanted to ask you, how did the sale to Amazon come about? I mean, I think Amazon is a landing spot for a lot of entrepreneurs out there. Can you tell me about any of the nitty gritty moments or or tactics that led to this? Absolutely. Especially at a time that the fangs or whatever you want to call them were one of the exit paths for companies. And so in terms of the space we played in, we were in millions of households. That's a very strategic spot for fangs and, and those types of companies. And the thing that's interesting about the router is that uh, the router sits at a cent central point of all your connected devices in the home. And so that's a very strategic place to be in. And that said, I remember I was talking to a banker and the banker mentioned every CFO and CEO in their mind think that Facebook or Google or Amazon or Microsoft will definitely acquire their company when it's time to sell, because why not? And in practice, it's never happens. And so his advice was just set it out of your mind. In our case, it did. It did work out. Those are discussions that it doesn't happen in one meeting or in one week or in a month. There are discussions that happened really since the launch of, of the product. We launched a product on Amazon. This was the, the first types of connections we had to, to the company. And so it's really a relationship that lasted four years until the acquisition, um, as was the case with other companies that looked at us as well. So it's not something that happens overnight, at least in our case, but I believe that's the case for most, for most companies out there. So it was four years in the making, you're saying? Four years in the making where you, you have various touch points throughout the organization. A good framework to think about that someone recommended to me is if you're serious about a potential acquirer, there are four different touch points that you want to have with those companies. The first one is the CEO or C-level executive. The second one is with corporate development. The third one is with people at a technical level on the ground. And then the fourth one is the finance team or whoever will have to approve on the acquisition. And, and those are touch points that you want to maintain on a regular basis. Not artificially so, but if you're serious about potential acquire, you probably want to touch base with those four entities every three to six months, ideally. Um, and that, that's how, in practice, from my experience, acquisitions happen. They don't happen overnight. There's plenty of exceptions, of course, but that's the typical path. And so what we did is we had a, a list of four or five potential acquires, not that we were looking to sell the company at any point in time, but we just knew that at some point the day may come. And what, when that day comes, we want to be ready. And so we maintained those touch points and some of them came naturally and some of it, for some of them, we had to be a bit more proactive. Would you recommend that all CFOs have a list out there, even if they're not acting on it, but of potential acquirers? I think something I would recommend every CFO does is keep a list of the top, the handful, small handful of potential acquirers, create a little matrix with who are the key constituents for each of those companies. So C-level, maybe it's the... the who the different sponsors are within those companies, someone in corporate development. So you end up with a list of three or four folks and try to make it a point to have touch points every three to six months, maybe once a year if it's a CEO of that company. And 
involve the rest of the leadership team of your company in this exercise. Again, not there's no need to spend a, a natural amount of time on it, but just remind, remind the rest of the leadership team to the importance of doing this. And ideally, this happens naturally already in the course of the business, but it's a good little matrix to keep track of. It's something, something I try to do. I love that. And we love frameworks here on the pod. So appreciate you sharing that. One of the words you used to describe your journey was a roller coaster. What were some of the high points and what were some of the low points along the way? For Ewer in particular, the high points were we built a product that people loved. It's a really cool product. And so being in the consumer industry, it's tankless. And from a business model perspective, can be painful sometimes. But launching a product that really took the space to the next level, it's only Wi-Fi, but you know, Wi-Fi is somewhere on Maslow's pyramid. It's at the top of my Maslow's hierarchy of needs, or I guess you put it at the bottom next to, I guess, at the bottom. Food, food and shelter. Yeah, I, I always joke to my wife that I have nothing if I don't have strong Wi-Fi, so it all starts with that. The first ad we ever made was Maslow's pyramid, and at the bottom was Wi-Fi. <laughs> the low light is, which is the downside of consumer electronics in general, even though we had a really big software component, but competition is tankless, and a lot of the competitive edge at first get copied by others. We ended up competing with much better funded companies, Google head-on with Google Wi-Fi, Netgear, Linksys, everyone was after us. And the low life was, we were still growing at a very healthy rate. I mean, you're talking 50 to 100% year over year for almost every single year. At the same time, investors being very worried about that level of competition. And despite, despite the progress and the revenue increases that we were seeing internally, seeing the level of doubt with investors led us to be more cash constraint and capital constraints that I was hoping we, we would be. And so if you fast forward to the Amazon acquisition, one of the reasons that has worked out so well, there's a couple, is that that capital constraints largely went away and it's really helped develop the company in a big way. I think very often capital constraint is not a major issue for companies and can be detrimental, but in our case, we were truly capital constrained. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. I think Google, while it's a place that many companies would want to be potentially acquired by, it's also, you know, the boogeyman that you hope doesn't come into your market. When Google started to play in your backyard and compete with you, was there like an overnight reaction to that, like a visceral reaction, like, oh shit, or was it more gradual over time? There was definitely an oh shit moment. All in one day? Like, take me back to when you knew that it was about to get tough sledding when it comes to competition. Yeah, obviously being the space, we had heard rumors that they were going to enter our space. Really, the, the moment that was a bit of oh shit was when they launched their product and it was priced, I think, 40% less than 40%. We yeah. I think they were unit economic negative, but they probably didn't care. And so that was the oh shit moment when we were competing with someone who was probably unit economic negative on what they were selling and had a obviously much better brand name, Google versus Eero, who knows what the Eero is. Our advantage was that we were a lot more focused. It's the only thing we did, therefore we did it better. Right. It was more polished. There was a bunch of things in our favor, but that was not a fun day. Was that one of the main reasons that investors pressured you to sell? Was, was that a main driver uh, behind the acquisition? It, yeah, it's not necessarily that investors pressured us. I think we all looked at the space we played in and we were definitely the most innovative company. We had north of $100 million in revenue. Wow. There were a lot of things going for us. Uh, by all measures, the product was, was quite successful. We just saw that it was going to be a slog because the space was fairly competitive. 
capital wasn't as readily available. And if you look at the consumer electronics space more broadly, it's really helpful to have a massive company behind you to help unlock distribution, capital, a few other things that otherwise would be a lot more difficult to realize. And so that that's the main benefit. And that's what really we came to the conclusion that it would be to anyone's benefit, first and foremost, our shareholders, to have the backing of a larger entity. After going through the process, what M&A advice would you give to other CFOs who are listening in, you know, having gone through this process from start to end? There's a real benefit, at least for us, to invest in the not super sexy stuff, the systems and passing an audit with a big four and hiring a good team all the way through. And it's sometimes hard to justify the spend to the CEO, but also to other teams at the company, hey, why do we have to invest in this as opposed to towards revenue growth directly? But it really plays out when it matters in case of, of M&A. I mean, in, in our case, it was important that we close quickly because of certain dynamics around tariffs with China and so forth. And because we had made all those investments in advance, we were able to go from signing to close and the whole diligence process with Amazon, which is one of the heavier diligence process you can go through, went through that whole process in two months, which is record time for this two size months. of acquisition yeah. for, for Amazon. And, and that's where all those investments paid off. And so I think my advice for a CFO would be to, if they have conviction that making those types of investments around the not super sexy stuff is worth it to stick with it all the way through because um, they're probably right. And so to, to fight through some of the pushback they may get. And I'm imagining Amazon threw their M&A team at you who, you know, they do this every day. Whereas, you know, you're an operator by trade. I know you have a private equity and investment banking background, but, you know, you're trying to run a company day to day. Did you feel like there was a learning curve in the process? Were there any like tactical moments that you were like, oh, shit, I never thought about that? Yes and no. There were definitely plenty of tactical things, even though to your point, I have an M&A background, I've done private equity and so forth. But I think... It's not because you have that experience that you, you do as many deals as people who do it on a monthly or quarterly basis. And so, yes, that what, what's really important is to surround yourself with the right set of advisors to help you through it and to have very open conversations. In particular, as a CFO, it's also to be able to admit to the right people that you don't know something that may seem pretty basic because the alternative of not fessing up to it and then you make a mistake is, is very costly in those situations. And so in, in our case, the advisors that were particularly helpful, you know, it's, it's having the right corporate lawyer that, you know, we used Cooley. We have a very long relationship with them. That was very helpful. We used JP Morgan as, as our investment bankers who were fantastic and good resources as well. And then, and then a few board members also. In particular, when you do a transaction, I've always found the independent board members to be pretty critical resources. As an executive, you are, at the end of the day, a common shareholder. And so you're better aligned with an independent board member than a VC investor. I never thought about it that way because the VCs are in the pref stack and have a different share class than than an independent member and, a, and an employee, right? That's right. And so that that's where that's one of the secret superpowers of an independent board member. They they can be your biggest ally as a common shareholder. It, it may not matter in some situations, but it it tends to come up quite. No, often. that's a great a nugget. I never I never thought about it that way. Look, looking at my board, you know as a CFO, who, who's holding the same type of share as I am, because incentives do drive outcomes. It, it comes up in cases of when you go through a tough four or nine day process, or if the waterfall is a bit funkier because of whatever reason during a process, or you need to set incentives for 
executives or founders uh, with compensation, having another common shareholder in your camp to think through it is, is sometimes, at least it leads to very clean incentives. And, and that, that can be helpful. In particular, if you have someone who is like an audit board member or a former CFO, someone who's done it many times before, that, that tends to be very helpful. That's an excellent nugget. I love that. So you stayed at Amazon for about a year after the acquisition. What was it like now being inside the big house? Were you responsible for the integration? Like walk me through that. Yeah, Amazon is a fantastic company. It's an execution machine. It's really impressive to see how they operate at that level of scale. I think if you look at our level of execution at Eero, it was probably not adjusted for size. It was definitely higher, but it's so much easier because we were a couple of hundred people. Amazon does it with a million employees. It's incredibly impressive to see how they're able to do it, the planning processes they go through and all of that. Uh, learned a ton there. My role changed completely after the acquisition. I was in charge of the integration process and so forth. Um, I stayed on for a year, which is probably longer than most CFOs stay after an acquisition. After a while, there's no need for a CFO within a company like, like Amazon just to, to run a business unit. There's a, there's a need for a different role. The role changes. So you're a lot more focused on the finance portion of the role. You don't, you don't have a board anymore. You don't run a bunch of other teams that you used to run. And so, yeah, that's just you know, what it's time for, uh, for something new, which is typically how, how it happens. Yeah, that's great perspective. For listeners out there, how long do CFOs usually stay aboard after an acquisition? Would, would you stack rank that as one of the positions that stays along the briefest amount of time? Yeah, typically it's a CFO, any senior GNA functions, I would say. Yeah, you don't need two general counsels. Exactly, general counsel, the CFO. And not because it's antagonistic in any way. It's just sure. the, there's no need for the role anymore. And so what's fairly typical uh, from my experience is somewhere between three to six months. There are also many examples where the acquiring company has a need for a senior finance person for whatever mm -hmm. reason. And so they, they find a new role for that person within the company that happens fairly often too. But what's pretty typical is three to six months. And so what's important as a CFO of a venture-backed company is to think through what does it mean for your equity during the time of an acquisition to think about things like yeah. double trigger for your equity and so forth, because in all likelihood, you won't stay as long as everyone else. You're responsible for the company and you have fiduciary responsibility, but you're human. You're also thinking about what's my outcome going to be. How did you think about it when Amazon came? Were, were you like, hey, I'm, I'm going to be out of here in a couple months? Or were you saying, hey, I'm going to stick around for a while and learn something? How did you size up the situation personally? It was a mix of the two. Those were essentially the, the different trade-offs. I wanted to learn. I was curious about Amazon. It's a fantastic company. At the same time, I knew my role was going to change pretty drastically. And so there were parts of it that were going to be a bit more tedious and less interesting. And that's roughly how it panned out. One year ended up being a great, great amount of time. I think what's really important, what I've seen work well, at least in my case, is to figure all those things out ahead of the transaction. And it's helpful as a CFO because you're in the room in those negotiations. So it's an unfair advantage that we have. But before yeah. the deal even closed, I had told Amazon I was going to stay for a year and I was going to leave. And because of that, we're able to structure things a certain way. It's also important to have those conversations with your board before you even sign a deal so that you can be sure that your incentives are aligned with the company's incentives. And even though you may think that the board obviously knows that that's what happens to CFOs and general counsel sometimes and so forth, what you realize in practice is that it's not top of mind for them because they don't wake up and think, hey, how, what do we need to do to take care of right, the CFO? Right, 50 other wait, things that are going to happen. Yeah, with 50 other things. And so it's important, I think, as a CFO to be proactive. It's not the most important thing, but it is really important to make sure that 
the incentives are aligned. Because when the incentives are not aligned, it leads to it can lead to messy things. I'm glad you brought that up because I think there are a lot of people listening who you know have uh, an acquisition in mind in the future, but they also don't know. Well, when do I talk about how it impacts me and my career and how long I'm tied to the company? I would say my advice would be as soon as you've aligned with the board as you're going to go through a sales process. I think that that is the time to have the conversation. It also happens to be the time when you have a fair bit of leverage as a CFO, not in a bad way, but hmm. the company needs you to run the process. And so it's a good time to have the conversation and to remind the board, hey, I may not stick around as long as everyone else. Incentives need to be aligned. Um, and, and you can take it all the way to, if you're happy with my performance, can you help me find the next thing? All right, if you have a VC on your board, or a conversation with the bankers and so forth. Assuming everyone is aligned that you may leave within three or six months after the acquisition, um, it's not a bad thing to, to discuss at, at some point. That's the inside baseball I was looking for. Thanks, for. thanks for elaborating on that. I appreciate it, Olivier. To move on a bit after Amazon, so you've had a number of finance roles and now you find yourself as CFO of Shippo. You've been there for about two years. So you've been both a pre-revenue CFO and a Series D at scale CFO. So the, the full spectrum there. And how different is the role? You spoke about Maslow's hierarchy of needs earlier. We were interviewing Michael Tannenbaum from Brex, and he described being a CFO at different stages as like progressing through that hierarchy of needs when it comes to risk. How have you progressed through that hierarchy of needs now that you know, you're on your way to enlightenment, hopefully? I love the analogy. I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly the role of, of the CFO to go through Maslow's hierarchy. Earlier stage is a lot of fun. I think the most fun you can have, or at least in my case, you get to building from scratch is pretty awesome. The unfortunate part is how risky it is and how few companies, how few companies make it to, you know, two or three rounds or stages of life past from when you, you join. That's a challenge with earlier stage companies. I think. Today, if you when when you're the CFO of a later stage company, yes, you're higher up on Maslow's hierarchy, and so it's less thinking through how the company survives, and it's more thinking about how can we build the best team possible, set incentives the right way for the company, and create as much shareholder value as possible towards whatever the mission and the vision of the company is. And so yeah. it changes pretty drastically. Yes. What are some of the qualities that you think separate a good CFO from a great CFO? A couple of things. The first one is at a very basic level, a level of competence, right? There's a pretty wide set of things that you need to do reasonably well that comes with experience and time. And that's a prerequisite, I think, to be table a great stakes. CFO. It's table stakes, but it's not a given. And I'm, I think we are all still learning in, in our own ways. The second one is to be able to take a look at a complex situation or the state of the company or the competitive dynamics and be able to distill it down in very simple terms where you have a good understanding of what are the two or three dynamics that really matter and then be able to impact those. I think it's easy to feel like you're drowning in information and there's so much going on. And so being able to distill things to their essence, it's really key for a CFO. Jim Cook from uh, Netflix, he was the first finance hire there and one of the co-founders and then went on to become the CFO of Mozilla Firefox. He said that the same thing. It was a first principles perspective. When you're drowning in information, what, what's the one or two things that actually matter to getting this right? And then from that follows, when you operate at later stage companies, as a CFO, if you're able to have a positive impact on only one or two things a quarter, but those things really matter in a big way, mm. I think you've done your job. 
right? That, that becomes the job later on. And those things can be making a fantastic hire. It can be identifying a target for M&A and going through that transaction. It can be a big internal initiative that really matters. If you end up doing one or two things incredibly well and focus on those in a quarter, I think you can have a really big impact as a, as a CFO. Now, to be clear, there are a bunch of things you need to do before you can get to that stage, right? So mm -hmm. if you don't have a stable team, if you're not able to close quickly, if you're not able to pass an audit, long list of things, you need to do, do those things first on Maslow's hierarchy. I like how you laid out taking a long-term view to kind of what you're ticking off the list or your accomplishments. I think that's something I've actually personally struggled with in a first-time CFO role that, you know, as an individual contributor or a leader of a smaller team, you're kind of used to having these smaller validation points along the way and get being able to confirm that you did something really good in that specific day. But sometimes as a CFO now, like I'll go to bed at night and you don't feel like you got that one distinct win. But to your point, it's almost like you, you have to take a longer term view to it. And it's going to take longer for these things to materialize, but overall they should create even more value to the business. One of the things that's really hard as a CFO is how long the feedback loops are. And oh man, it's so long. <laughs> and, and yeah, sometimes the feedback loops never come, uh, which is even worse. Going back to Eero, the investments we made on our accounting team and having to pass an audit with the ENY and so forth is not sexy at all. And the number of conversations I had internally on why those investments were needed, it wasn't constant, but definitely had many of those conversations. And the feedback loop is a four-year feedback loop. And then, and then you get there. But having the conviction to go through something like that is really important. The challenge is that sometimes you're wrong, and then it's not, it's not that you're always right. And then, yeah. and then four years later, it turns out you're wrong, and that's, that's not a good thing. And so that, that's where the job is pretty hard. Also because CEOs and often the board, the dynamics are such that the feedback they give you is not always the most relatable because their job is very different or they have other priorities, whatever the reason, it doesn't matter. And that is different from within a finance team and your manager is also someone within the finance team. I think then it's a much tighter feedback loop. That's one of the benefits of being in, in those roles, I think, as opposed to a CFO role. It can be a bit lonely sometimes. When you're a CFO, it's your first time not reporting to a CFO, right? Yes. And that's a different language that you have to speak that you have to get used to. Yeah, what matters ends up changing a whole lot. <laughs> Can you dig into that? So what matters ends up changing. Is, are you saying it's almost like a different scorecard you're now measured against? It's a completely different scorecard. As a CFO, you don't really represent a CFO organization. What you do has an impact on the whole company. Not to say that that's not the case when you are in more junior roles, but it's a lot more the case when you become a CFO. And so as an example, if in a given day you have a bunch of meetings, but one of those meetings is doing a lunch and learn or a Q&A yeah. with R&D leadership. Mm -hmm. I did one of those yesterday for product, actually. And you do an awesome job at it. That, that is probably the biggest impact thing you could do that day, right? Because as a CFO, the R&D leadership, as an example, looks at you for certain piece of information, context that they don't have. And if you give a positive message that's encouraging or with a lot of honesty and transparency or whatever it is, and you do a good job, that has a big impact that the R&D leader is going to be grateful and feel good about things and you know the confidence level between the orgs increase and so forth. Conversely, if you do a really shitty job, for example, you don't exude confidence 
or the message that you convey doesn't align with where the company is headed or where the R&D team is headed for whatever reason. That is a very consequential meeting you just had. And so that dynamic as a kind of tactical example is a dynamic that is a lot less prevalent when you are in other worlds within a finance organization. It's actually eye-opening because you can see these things in the calendar that to other people may just be like, oh, the CFO is coming to speak to me or it's a lunch and learn or something like that. But you're really, you're, you're carrying a larger message and it's also what you don't say that's implied. Like you said, you have to exude yeah. confidence. Yeah, it's, it's often a few, a few things done well during the day that have an outsized impact. Now, there's a lot of preparation that go into them. Let's go back to this example with this R&D talk. Because of the impact that those types of meetings can have, arguably the right way to schedule your day is, hey, let's spend an outsized impact making sure this meeting goes well. Perhaps it's one or two prep meetings in advance, just jotting down what you're going to say, making sure that you, know, you present well and so forth. Maybe that takes an hour or two. And then the R&D meeting itself in our example takes, let's say, an, an hour. You've now spent three plus hours yeah, like on a, this a meeting. Day. Yeah. But that is arguably the best use of your time as a CFO, which is fairly counterintuitive. Right, right it is. If, if you're used to other roles before that. And so that's a really big shift. I think another big shift is the importance of interviewing people and preparing for those and bringing a lot of energy mm -hmm. to them. We were talking to Yvonne from Webflow and what he said to me was interviews, they drain me like because I know that I have to bring all the energy and confidence and my storytelling to them because if I give somebody the wrong impression of me, I'm really rubbing off the wrong impression of the company. And it made me think like, oh shit, CJ, you don't spend as much time preparing for interviews as you probably should because you're so used to just trying to get stuff done during the day that it's like, oh man, I got an interview that's breaking up the rest of my day. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. Interviews are, are tough in, in general. What's hard is when you have too much on your calendar. And what's interesting is how much of an artificial construct I think the calendar is. Yeah. Right? During COVID, we all started working from home and everyone had an, hour, an extra hour or two during the day from not having to commute. And magically, those two hours, I think the first couple of weeks, everyone really had an extra hour or two and it felt great. And very quickly that went away because it got filled up by new meetings. And so just like if you don't pay attention, it will fill up very quickly. Yeah. I think if you pay attention, you can create the necessary blocks of time during the day that you need to really think about things deeply, for example, on how to, to be energized during an yeah. interview. That's a lot easier said than done. I, I'm still not great at it, but I think it's something to aspire to. Time management as a CFO, do you put deliberate blocks on your calendar for specific things you have to get done? I spend a lot of effort thinking about, about my calendar think through which meetings I'm really needed in. And it helps to have a very strong team because then they're able to do a lot more. And if you attend certain meetings, you just end up being in the way. Yeah, I, I tend to be pretty aggressive about removing myself from meetings or making time. I'm glad you said that because I think a lot of people are afraid to do that. I'm terrible at it. <laughs> um, to transition here, we're gonna move into what we call our long ass lightning round. So the first question I like to ask everybody, you know, we're all human. Can you give me an example of something you've screwed up on the job, either here or a previous role throughout your career? We were working on a deal and I wanted to do things a certain way about a very important term 
for the deal. We had a discussion with the board about it. And a bo one board member felt very strongly that it should be done differently and it should yeah. be done his way. And because he was a board member, so essentially my boss's boss or whatever, you, however you want to describe the board, I defer to him uh, right away because, you know, he was a very accomplished VC and so forth, instead of challenging him to really understand why he was recommending it and have an honest conversation about it. And it ended up costing the, the company a couple of million dollars. And I partially blame myself because all I had to do was go with my guts and mm. not challenge him, but at least have the conversation on, on why he was recommending such a thing. And I think, it, it, you know, often it can be imposing and, and scary to do it. I was probably a bit uncomfortable in that case. And that was, that was not a good move. That's a good one. If you could tell your younger self something, knowing what you know today, what would you tell him? Having kids early in life has been great for me. This is completely not work-related. No, this but, is good. I, I like this angle. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I, I give credit to my wife here to, to, you know, if it wasn't for her, we'd probably be uh, a fair number of years delayed, I would say. And I think, you know, as CFOs or probably people listening to this podcast, we end up being very focused on our work. And I think there's a tendency, if you look at the past decades, to push that decision out yeah. for, for all the right reasons. I mean, it's a very personal decision, of course. But I think with the hindsight that I now have, I think it is not easy, but possible to balance everything out. And I think there's really something to be said about having kids earlier in life. And so that, you know, again, it's personal, but that's what I would tell myself. Someone said to me that every year you wait to have your kid is actually one year less you get to spend with them in your life. And when they said that, I was like, oh, wow, that kind of blew my mind. <laughs> that, that's a really good point. That and, and the grandkids too, right? I know, I know you paused before giving us the advice for a second, but that was, the, that was the best one I think we've had in this lightning round so far. So thank you. All right, next one here. Roll the theme music, producer Nancy. And with that, it's time to rep your stack. Sponsored by Tropic, the next-gen procurement platform helping modern CFOs take control of their budgets and bottom line. By combining approval workflows, supplier management, and pricing benchmarks all in one place, Tropic makes savings opportunities easy to find and act on. Visit tropicapp.io to learn how. Can you walk me through your finance software stack? Yeah, we have NetSuite as our ERP. We, sure, com we completely revamped our procure to pay flow. What's going on in procure to pay is super interesting these days. There's a complete shift. I mean, you know it very well. And so for expense management, we switched to ramp. For travel management, we switched to Navan. For API automation, we switched to Tipalti. For intake approvals and procurements, we are using Tipalti as well. Um, there are some other companies like Zip that are, I think, super interesting also there. I've, I used Kuba previously. We use Tripe for a lot of our AR because of the, the business that we have. We use Adaptive for, for planning. And I think sometimes you realize that using Excel is also an okay tool. Um, that's a longer conversation. They'll never kill Excel as hard nope. as they try. Last question I got for you. What's the craziest thing you've seen someone try to expense? $100 haircut, men's haircut was a funny one. Nice, good one. All right. I was waiting for someone to say haircut. I thought that would have been the first one people would have given me. There we go. Yeah. And they claimed that it was a mistake and, and we will never know. 
But the, the thing that everyone was curious about is how do you spend a hundred dollars on a regular men's haircut? And that, that is the bigger question. That's an expensive haircut. I would have liked to see the picture. You should have asked for a picture along with the receipt. And part of the reason I can't relate is the hair that I have. I, if you have, <laughs> if you if you have better hair, maybe uh, maybe those people can explain it. Appreciate it, man. Olivier Adler, thanks for coming on the Run the Numbers podcast. You're an extremely thoughtful CFO, and I appreciate all the insights you brought. Thanks. Pleasure is mine. Run the Numbers is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen, Econ 102, and more. If you liked the episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or rate us on Spotify. Do it.